episode 407, Considering Comprehensive Primary Care at Humana. Today, I speak with Dr. Vivek Garg. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Okay, let me get real here for a sec. For a few reasons, I wanted to chat with Vivek Garg, MD, MBA. Dr. Garg is CMO, Chief Medical Officer of Primary Care at Humana. Dr. Garg is an inspiring and incredibly articulate individual, and I like to both learn from and also be kept on my toes by the likes of such folks. But also, yeah, I'm suspicious of vertically consolidated payers. I mean, you listen to this podcast. I don't need to recap what the financialization of the healthcare industry has done to patient care. But you heard my manifesto in episode 400. It's about trying to find the right path forward and being open to exploring options here. It's considering what doing well by doing good actually means. It's contemplating whether to celebrate some good stuff going on in the industry, even if there's some not so good stuff going on in that same sector or even in that same company. Bottom line, we're living in the real world here and utopia is not on the table at least anytime soon. So that means there is always going to be one thing that we are always going to have to weigh in our consideration set, in our assessment equation that I talked about in my manifesto in episode 400. What's this one thing? It's self-interested, shareholder-centric goal-setting. In other words, just because I spot a self-interested, shareholder-centric goal doesn't mean I'm automatically going to get out my red Sharpie and cross off the whatever with a sour expression on my face. Because yeah, if I did that, a whole lot of Americans are not going to get, even incrementally, better healthcare. The right equation to determine if something is net-net good is always going to be nuanced. The equation should weigh the impact of the self-interest, which is always going to be there, against the impact on patient care and patient financials and how the whole thing impacts clinicians at a local level or maybe a national level, depending on what's going on. I'd also suggest that there's no real broad strokes here because the equation for any given initiative or pilot or approach is really singular. I think it'd be a big mistake to lump together, for example, all payviders across the country and assume that their impact is all the same, or all Medicare Advantage plans, or anybody doing advanced primary care. All these words slash groups I just referenced are relevant to the conversation today. You have some payviders, for example, doing all kinds of crap with dummy codes and or anti-competitive contracts and or steering only to their own medical groups, which they staff inadequately, and or blanket denials of anything that will throw off their medical trend calculations, and or prescribing and care pathways coinciding with their own highly financialized PBM formularies. But then, on the flip side, you also have some interesting things going on that help patients in their communities. A key ingredient of these interesting things is taking into account longer time horizons. Longer time horizons are actually pretty key here for anybody trying to do anything preventative or anything involving forming patient relationships. Also, of course, you have those who are doing some combination of the good stuff and the not so good stuff. And one of the reasons why the not so good stuff becomes so ingrained is that risk adjustment, especially if you're a payvider, 
risk adjustment across the board has anything but a longer time horizon. So let's dig into what Dr. Vivek Garg has going on at Humana Primary Care, which includes CenterWell Senior Primary Care and also Conviva Care Center. I asked Dr. Garg some pretty hard questions about balancing the tension between being a payer with a PBM with an incentive to deny care and a provider organization seeing patients that is also beholden to those same shareholders. Dr. Garg taught me a new term, and that's the dyad model where you have doctors and admins working together or clinicians and admins working together. You get the clinical team to shadow the administrative team and you get the administrative team to shadow the clinical team. You teach doctors and others the business of medicine and you teach admins what it's like to be a clinician or a patient on the other end of some of those policies. Now, if you have a good memory, you are probably also recalling that Eric Gallagher from Oshner in episode 405 talked about this exact same concept, i.e. working together, i.e. the scrubs and the suits coming together into this dyad leadership model. There's a quote from Dr. Denver Sally in episode 403 with Dr. Amy Scanlon talking about pretty much this exact same thing. And furthermore, this whole getting doctors up to speed on the business of medicine is going to be the topic of an upcoming episode with Dr. Adam Brown. So yeah, this is becoming a thing, the idea of teaching clinicians the business of medicine. But the opposite should also get some focus, teaching admins the medicine of medicine. Dr. Garg cites three pillars to improving an organization's ability to sustainably deliver better health care. And these three pillars are, number one, to focus on the patient experience, Number two, to focus on outcomes. And then number three, to engage the clinical teams and really protect them, to protect this precious resource that doctors and other clinicians actually are. Taken together, these three pillars coincide with the pivotal question here. And that pivotal question is, how much is any given entity actually investing in clinical leadership? Because in combination, great clinical leadership plus the three pillars, i.e. a focus on experience, outcomes, and clinical engagement. You put all those things together and it adds up to each individual who works in the place to harness their own intrinsic motivation to be able to explore and double down on and actually achieve the reasons why they went into healthcare to begin with and spent years of their lives in school in order to do so. Dr. Garg mentions the latest Humana report in this show, link in the show notes. And then I mentioned how I interviewed Steve Blumberg from Guidewell about the 2020 Humana report. And that link is in the show notes too. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Dr. Vivek Garg, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you, Stacey. It's a pleasure to be here with you. What we're talking about here and the work that you're doing, I'm not sure if we could use the term advanced primary care or transformative primary care or corporatized primary care. I'm not sure if there's a term that you prefer. I've heard them all. But you said something compelling. You said that the healthcare system doesn't give patients what they deserve. What do you think that they can expect more of within advanced primary care models? Yeah, I think there's a lot we can expect and do. I think of advanced or comprehensive primary care, if done well, as the single biggest tool we have to improve population health and outcomes. And I think about comprehensive primary care really by the four C's that Barbara Starfield and colleagues first outlined years ago. And it looks like first contact. 
availability for care so that you're there when people have a need. It's around continuity of care so that the care team gets to know their patients over time. And really so that you have the trust and relationship and context to work with them on issues that are not immediate. It's also around the comprehensiveness of care so that we're looking at people as whole people and we're not just treating the code or documented condition in front of us. We're thinking about people's social and emotional health, their behavioral health, and how all of their medical issues intersect into their overall quality of life and health. And it's also about coordination of care. That's the fourth C. Because we all need to be looking at what's happening with our patients outside our own four walls and really be accountable as the primary care team around what's happening with our patients. So I think of those as some of the necessary elements. And really at the core is a professional sense of accountability and pride in helping people live a good life, make good decisions, see improvements in their health, and do more of the things they want to do. Maybe the last point I'll make is to do this, we should be investing a lot more in primary care. In our value-based care frameworks, we've shown that practices that take full risk spend 15% or more of the healthcare dollar on primary care compared to an average in the nation of 5 to 7%. When you look at developed societies with better population health overall, they are spending a similar amount, essentially three times as much as we spend nationally on primary care. And then two other elements. You get a more sustainable practice model. You get an opportunity for people to reactivate their joy in their professional domain. Doesn't mean it's easy. It's still hard work, but we are facing a crisis in burnout and people opting out of being active clinical professionals. We really need to create more sustainable practice homes. And I think the type of work we do and others do enable that. And you get better outcomes, which I started with. So you were saying that these comprehensive primary care models are the single biggest tool to improve population health. And those are fighting words, right? (laughs) That's a big statement there. And then you went through the four C's of what comprehensive primary care actually means, which is contact, referring to availability, the continuity of care, the comprehensiveness of care, and then the coordination of care. So let's do this with the next part of our conversation, if you're up for it, Dr. Garg. I'm going to run through a list of factors, externalities. The first one I'd like to start with is the ecosystem that the comprehensive practice might be within. So we all know that there are geographies in the United States that have some monopolistic entities, either payers or health systems. If we're trying to do comprehensive primary care within one of these ecosystems that may or may not be competitive, how does that ecosystem impact the ability of a practice within this comprehensive primary care model to do its thing well? It's a great area to talk about, Stacey, because I think having worked with many teams and organizations doing this work, one of the things that our teams get frustrated by is how they can't effectuate change outside their four walls. They see all the barriers on behalf of their patients. They see the lack of access to high-quality food. They see the lack of access to high-quality housing. And so you really see not just the healthcare ecosystem, but also the social ecosystem. And they feel that frustration of feeling like there's more we need to do for people, and we're challenged to do it, frankly, right now. One path just to talk about it is to do more ourselves. And so we are doing some things in our primary care group and so are our peers where we're doing more around specialty care. We're bringing in e-consults so we can have specialist expertise at our PCP's fingertips. We're looking at analytics partners that have built really interesting appropriateness of care and quality of care metrics 
off of large claims data sets, both government and non-government, so that we can really make sure our patients get to high-quality specialists for their needs. One of our markets, we actually have our own cardiology group, which is quite small, but sees all of the cardiology-related referrals from our primary care team, supporting patients with heart failure or new cardiac ischemia or consideration of vascular disease and procedures, and it's quick access care with a very aligned group. So just using specialty care as one example, there's more that groups like us can do. But your point still stands. We do not control the rest of the ecosystem and I think that there's at least two other areas that we really need to focus on. One is around hospital-based care. The hospital-based care has really changed over the last two or three decades. If you would talk to my father, who just retired after 45 years of hospital and outpatient practice as a pulmonologist, he would say the quality of care has gone completely down the drain. He would point to the lack of ownership of the depth of patients' needs he would point to how many specialists are consulted and just checking in with patients and writing a quick note and billing. And he would point to sort of the lack of connectivity about who the patient was before the hospital episode and who they're going to be and what context they're going to be in after the hospital stay. And so uh, obviously groups like ours work around post-discharge coordination and engagement. We plug into ADT and HIE feeds wherever we can but we have to reform hospital care towards something more aligned with people's needs and a true journey and population view of people's health, reconnected not just to primary care, but the post-acute care and everything else that patients experience. You brought up the hard fact IRL in real life that you can't really control or effectuate change outside the four walls of your own organization. And you've got the healthcare side of the ecosystem, but then also the social ecosystem. So to try to level up there, your plan is to bring as much as possible under the same roof. You were talking about doing analytics yourselves, providing housing. I saw a story in the news about that. Then maybe employing your own specialists such that there can be that continuity of care that you had mentioned in your four C's. But then you also brought up hospitals, which always comes up. (laughs) Just the idea that, you know, you got to put heads in beds. So you've got this volume imperative. Also, just this idea of if you try to cut costs and insert, in air quotes, team-based care, what winds up happening is nobody now has accountability for the patient. There's this lack of connectivity. Everybody's kind of running around billing things, but nobody's really taking ownership for that patient's overall health. All of this, if you're trying to do comprehensive primary care and you are getting paid a capitated rate to take care of patient health and every time a patient goes to the hospital, it can turn into either a major black hole from a financial standpoint, but then also just nobody knows what happened there. And that's a great way to have an unfortunate laser claim. Did I get that right? Yeah, I think you captured it well, Stacey. What I'd say is groups like ours feel the responsibility to expand our care models in ways that make the most sense for our patients' needs. And so we're always seeking to do more ourselves, but you do hit this limit about what the ecosystem is locally. And that's where I think we need to have a different kind of conversation, maybe collaborate across the industry. So let's go back to our list here of people or externalities that influence the delivery of comprehensive primary care. 
Let's talk about doctors and other clinicians. If you were just going to sum up what the impact is of the physicians and other clinicians who are in that local area as it relates to the delivery of comprehensive primary care, how would you sum that up? One thing I've been thinking about a lot is the professional values of the physician profession. And you could argue that we drift sometimes from them, and there's obviously variation in how we all display these values. But two of the key values are beneficence and autonomy. Beneficence means that we have a professional responsibility to take positive steps ourselves to help our patients improve their health. We are there for their good. Autonomy means not our professional autonomy. It means we respect the autonomy of patients as individuals so that we should be actively seeking their preferences, educating them, listening to their perspective, and ultimately making joint decisions. We do a lot to constantly try to improve really around empowering our clinicians to lead from that professional values orientation. Because if we can center around clinicians as the champions for those values, the whole team comes along. And I'll tell you, I had an experience last year where I heard about a great geriatrician-trained primary care physician in our team in Houston. I met with the clinical team and some of the leadership and the operations staff, the nurses, the medical assistants all told me how transformative this physician was to the culture of one clinic. They all rallied behind her because they knew she was there for her patients and she was able to marshal a spirit and a vision and a purpose that people wanted to be a part of. So I will say we are all better off, patients, people in roles like me, you, when we can kind of channel that spirit and make it real at a place where people are working on behalf of patients. And and I'll say on the flip side, one thing that is counter to this is really the technology that our clinicians are working with right now. I see how people talk about the technology innovation in healthcare. And I'll tell you, technology is a four-letter word to most clinicians right now. They feel imprisoned by the technology ecosystem around them. And we need to move to a technology platform that lets them express these values, lets them be the captain of the ship for their patients' needs, lets them see the great output of their work, lets them be a part of coordinating and orchestrating care with their team and with others outside their four walls. And I think we are so far from that right now that I feel like I'm not doing enough about it personally. I sort of want to challenge the industry to really look at what we're trapping our clinicians in and whether any of this, these new advances like AI are actually going to help. And let's make sure they do. The core of what you're talking about here is to ensure the organization that doctors and clinicians work for echoes the professional values that these individuals likely went into medicine in the first place because of. The idea of taking ownership for patients, worrying about patients, thinking about patients and being primarily focused on doing the best job possible and to improve patient health. And you articulated two values. One is beneficence and then the other one is respecting patient autonomy, if I'm understanding you correctly. I did interview Doug Eby, Dr. Doug Eby from the Nuka system, and he actually said something quite similar. We'll put a link in the show notes. They actually call their patients, they don't call them patients, they call them customer owners. And I emphasis on the owners part of it because effectively the idea is the same, that these are individuals, they're in charge. 
So as a clinician, the job number one is to support what their vision is for themselves. This seems like kind of a recurring theme. I, you know, I really appreciated the idea also that if you have an individual in the practice who has the spirit, the vision to have a champion like that can be really transformative. But to the point that you were making about technology, I mean, obviously, this is a totally oversimplified statement. Technology tends to be transactional. It's all about the episode or maybe more accurately billing for the episode. What we need to do with the technology is actually support and enable a team working together with a set of patients so that they can easily, with less friction, share tasks communicate, be aligned on the care plan, and partner really collaboratively. I mean, right now, everybody thinks that all doctors talk to each other. If you go to a specialist, they talk to your PCP and vice versa. It mostly doesn't happen in the real world. So integration is really integration of communication and partnership. Technology enablement is creating the operational framework and enabling these teams Dr. Amy Scanlon from the UC Health Intermountain Clinically Integrated Network in Colorado mentioned that in the past, potentially physicians talked a lot more and then given the rise of technology, then the doctor's lounges were deemed unnecessary. And now you have the situation that you just described where there is kind of a lack of collaboration and how much joy can be achieved by getting the opportunity to actually talk to peers as opposed to kind of trading notes on electronic devices, which are copied and pasted from something else. The one knock on advanced primary care from a physician standpoint that I have heard is that, so you're talking about autonomy and you were definitely referring to patient autonomy. But the one thing that does often come up is that especially physicians working for an entity which is vertically integrated, there is a lot of constraints on their ability to do what they feel might be best for a particular patient, that there are formulary restrictions, that there are, you're going to get fired if you prescribe too many things which are deemed unprofitable. How do you address a question like that? I think this is a part of the challenge of our times, which is in our optimization of healthcare and delivery of services, we are overall not just in one type of financial model or one sector of primary care or special. We, we are all crowding out the intrinsic motivation of these dedicated professionals and also patients because then they just get put through the machine and it could be one machine or another. And so I think there's a part of it, which is creating enough space in your model And that space might be staffing levels. It might be space that's created through operational sophistication and better technology enablement, like we talked about a minute ago. But I think then it really comes down to how do you center on the values and how you lead and how you drive decisions? I think we hurt ourselves when we hide information. If you really want to have some of the values expressed through the clinical professions in your decision making, you have to show people what all the considerations are. Our group and other groups like ours that have chosen to orient around a dyad model where there's a clinical leader and an administrative or operational leader partnered, we have to show them everything and we have to show them how to make it all work. And then we have to listen to what they say and where they're going to take us. That can be really uncomfortable early on for people because it means giving doctors the finances. It may mean getting people who've been mostly oriented around profitability, shadow some patient care. But I find that when you can do that well, you get very comprehensive, thoughtful insights and recommendations. 
that frankly, the rest of us try to get out of the way and then support. But, and I think that's more of that is needed in healthcare overall in any different lane so that we can create things that are sustainable economically. We can create things that have a chance to spread beyond the initial experiment, which requires money. And we can do it for the right reasons in the right way and produce some of the impact we talked about before. How do you think about staffing? Who is on those quality committees and really how much authority do they have to influence what goes on downstream when we all know at the top of the food chain there, there are shareholders? You, you picked an easy topic, Stacey. It's a big topic. And let me just share one quick thought, which is this was part of my decision making about joining Humana. And I think if you look at the Humana ecosystem, there's a long history of partnering with physician-led practices around value-based care, independent practices, more scale practices, health systems, and medical groups. There is a lot of physician leadership in the organization, and it has only increased. So I think it's an important issue, and I think you can see organizations that are making statements by how much they invest in clinical leadership. Then I'd say every organization has to pay attention to three areas. And I think if we all pay attention to these three areas, we will make more of the right decisions and move the ball forward on our population's health and be effective and sustainable. The first area is patient experience. And I think many organizations have started down that road, but we have no shot of doing anything else to help our patients if they don't like us if they don't feel that trust and relationship. And I think that consumer patient experience focus has brought a lot of good innovation to healthcare and we need more of it. And so I think board level, leadership level, visibility, engagement on patient experience is very important. The second area is on outcomes. We actually don't look much, I'm saying we broadly as an industry, at how our clinical ecosystems are producing outcomes. This is an area that value-based care and primary care is leading in. I think we need to look at it for hospital and post-acute care. We need to look at it for specialty care. If we incorporate more of a view around the outcomes of the care that we're providing, are they patient goal concordant? Are they leading to better health? We will make more of the right decisions. And then the third kind of pillar I'd outline is clinician engagement, retention, and satisfaction. And many more decisions need to be at least much more weighted based on maintenance, engagement, and support of this really precious resource. We need a lot more public discussion and organization-level focus on clinician engagement, retention, and satisfaction. And we need decisions made much more with that in mind. So to transpose it to your immediate question, I would love to see every part of the healthcare ecosystem, bring focus on those three pillars. The three pillars being, just to reiterate, patient experience, focus on outcomes, and then engagement of the clinical teams, which rolls up to the point that you made, that the pivotal question here is how much is any given entity investing in clinical leadership the goal to your earlier point being to give each individual who works there intrinsic motivation or to give people the space for intrinsic motivation to be able to explore and double down on and actually achieve the reasons why they went into healthcare to begin with and spent years of their lives in school to do so. I think our professionals need to see the industry make more decisions for them. And I think our patients also need to see that. 
The one thing that I would dig into relative to this intrinsic motivation and giving clinicians the autonomy to do what they feel is right, kind of knocking heads with prior authorization and very expensive pharmaceuticals on formularies, that would definitely seem to be a balance. Mm -hmm. You have a care pathway and it mandates certain drugs in a certain order potentially versus this patient doesn't want to do that because dot, 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 or that cheaper drug won't work because this patient has dot, dot, dot in their chart. I do feel like that there is inherent tension there. And as a vertically integrated entity who is beholden to the same masters, you've got the PBM side of the house and you've got the other entities that you just listed, there is even more of an impetus to rein in some of the more expensive modalities that are frankly not experimental. Like this would feel like an organizational challenge to really, if you're a clinician working in an entity that is frankly at the end of the day responsible for the bottom line, I could see how there would be a pressure to conform. Let me give you some other points to consider from things that I think groups like ours do. So there's a lot of potential for conflict intention when you assume responsibility for the total cost of care. When you move towards a payvider or more integrated kind of health plan payer and provider partnership or construct, the opportunity is there to do two things. One is to take a longer view on the time frame. And so if you think about a few months or a year, you create all your structures around like optimizing everything in that year you miss a lot of opportunity to actually help people be healthier and have better outcomes. And so plans have a longer time frame in their view, especially Medicare plans and especially CMS through the ACO programs, which we participate in through Centerwell and Conviva, they have a multi-year time frame. We can do things that are sort of invest now, pay off later, clinically meaningful. And Humana has started to look at creating metrics around things like, does Humana actually help people have slower progression of their chronic disease? And could we look at that in our medical group too? That's like core to being a great primary care team. Like we should be helping people prevent the need for chronic disease. If they have it, slow the progression, prevent complications from it. And if all of that still happens, get the best care possible from whoever's needed. So one part is the time frame changes. The second is you can take things that are typically done by a plan and either turn them off or have the medical group lead them. And so I'll use prior authorization as a prime example. Our PCPs don't have prior auth for the things that they order. We can help partner and say these specialists should be goal carded because they practice evidence-based care and we're very partnered with them. These are the types of things that become possible where you can let the patient care group kind of take on some of the functions. You can help inform based on your perspective. And then because you're the group that's at full risk and accountable for the total cost of care, you can shape much more of it. And so I do agree the potential for a lot of conflicts are there in any ecosystem where people are actually looking at costs and finances, but that's sort of all of healthcare now. But I think in these integrated constructs, you have an opportunity to create much more alignment. And frankly, that's why there's people like me who work at places like this, because we can create, we can be a part of helping to create some of that alignment on behalf of our teams and our patients. It's interesting that you're talking about looking at a longer risk horizon. I'm actually moderating a panel at the Society of Actuaries. 
And one of the things that became kind of clear in trying to prepare for this panel is how the actuaries view timeframes. And especially with PDP plans, drug plans, it's pretty immediate relative to how they're assessing risk and then figuring out what the benefit design should be. So it's interesting that you're talking about having a longer horizon there. And I'm assuming that financially, the the rate critical is the turnover of plan patients. Because if the turnover is quite short, then from an underwriting perspective, it's not going to work to have a longer time horizon. But if you have patients for a longer period of time and your time horizon is too short, I think it probably, and I'm not an actuary, which becomes very clear when I'm talking to these actuaries, I think it's probably reasonable to assume that you also are creating a suboptimal equation because you're not doing things that could potentially cut costs in a couple of years. I mean, assuming you're not working quarter to quarter there, but it might actually wind up being the better move to take a longer term horizon. Personally, I think that's where healthcare needs to move to. Our group has a longer time frame. We want our patients to like us and stay with us. We want to partner with them for many years, however long they'll have us. Our clinical team's not going anywhere. Our clinics aren't going anywhere. And so we're very long-term oriented. And yet we have to work within the ecosystem you described. But because we groups like ours own the financial risk, we can exert more of that long-term view and do the math to figure out things that have longer horizons for patient benefit, economic sustainability, all of it. But we need more things to be like that. And if you look at the quality ecosystem or the risk adjustment ecosystem or any of these other things or Medicaid, let alone employer and commercial, it is not a multi-year framework. But that's how people live and how things change and progress. And so ultimately for me, that's one of the reasons why I think primary care is the single biggest instrument we have to move the needle on population health and outcomes because we are intrinsically oriented and mechanistically oriented around the long-term health of our population of patients. If someone is interested in learning more about your work, Dr. Vivek Garg, where can they go for more information? Humana.com, centralprimarycare.com. And I'd say the, the key thing out there right now is the Humana Value-Based Care Report. And so you can find that on the Humana website or search for it on your favorite search tool or ask ChatGPT to find it. It's a really comprehensive but brief look at what we're doing in primary care in our group, how Humana has partnered with value-based care providers. We'll link to that on the show notes. I interviewed Steve Blumberg about the Humana report in 2020, and I am pleased to say that Humana took our advice in the 2022 report. Well, that's always good. Yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) Dr. Vivek Garg, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you, Stacey. And I really appreciate the voice you're channeling around sort of the real issues in healthcare. Thanks for the opportunity. Hey, could I ask you to do me a favor? If you are part of the relentless tribe working hard to transform healthcare in this country, I don't need to tell you that we need as many on our side as we can get. The most vital thing that you could do to help expand the reach of this show is to leave a rating or a review on iTunes or Spotify and or share this show with colleagues or decision makers. Personally, I cannot appreciate it more when I see the reviews and they really count towards our search rankings. Thanks so much for listening.